How many of you here would consider yourselves, at least in some respect, history buffs? A little bit, maybe somewhat? Okay. Um, Four years ago, uh, the world celebrated uh, the anniversary of an event that uh, really kind of marked uh, history in a unique way. Uh, The exact date was April the 14th, 2012, and that was the 100th anniversary of a major event in history. Can anybody guess? Very good. And excellent. Nancy, you're good. Sinking of the Titanic. Very good. Yeah, 100 years ago on the 12th, as you probably know, um, the RMS Titanic uh, sunk on its maiden voyage uh, on April 14, 1912, traveling from Southampton, uh, England, to New York. It sunk Uh, approximately 350 miles off the coast of Newfoundland, Canada, after hitting an iceberg. Um, And then in 1985, the wreck was discovered, uh, and it set off what some people came to call Titanic mania. Uh, Everything became Titanic, and one of the, I guess one of the big things that came out of it was the 1997 blockbuster film uh, by the same name, Titanic, starring... Uh, Leonardo DiCaprio. Uh, I still remember I had just uh, graduated from uh, Western Seminary in Portland, Oregon, and uh, Janine and I were getting ready to move back to the East Coast, and we went to the movies in Portland. I still remember to see uh, that film, and I'm sure a lot of you saw it as well. But as I said, it kicked off this, you know, everything was Titanic. You know, people were talking about the Titanic. It just stirred uh, America's imagination and the world's imagination. Uh, just the film alone, Americans spent $600 million uh, to see that film, the film of the Titanic, a huge box office success. And Ballard had spent a fair bit of time looking for the Titanic, but he wasn't the first person to look for the Titanic. There were actually a whole string of people. Uh, the only real serious one before Ballard uh, was a guy by the name of Jack Graham, an oil, oil man from Texas, a uh, very wealthy man, and Jack Graham had decided he wanted his names in the history, name in the history books, and in 1980, he launched an expedition, uh, funded an expedition to find the Titanic. That failed. Uh, he launched a second expedition in 1981. That failed, and then a third expedition in 1983, which also failed, uh, and it wasn't until 1985, on his second expedition to search for the Titanic, uh, that Robert Ballard finally did discover uh, the wreck of the Titanic. And what had actually happened uh, was on the night of the sinking, the radio operator on the Titanic sent out, at that time they didn't call it SOS, uh, I think that you had the option, they were just introducing SOS, but the official distress signal was still called a CQD, and the CQD with position that was issued that night turned out to be uh, quite a bit off the mark of the actual location of the final wreck. When Robert Ballard finally found the wreck of the Titanic in 1985, it was two and a half miles further south and 15 and a half miles further east from the CQD position that was radioed by Titanic on that fateful night. So both Jack Grimm and Robert Ballard knew what they were looking for but they were looking in the wrong place. Father, thank you for every single person who's here this morning. We know that none are here by accident. Uh, We know that you are sovereign over the affairs of men. 
We ask you this morning uh, to speak to us through your word. Make us uh, good lookers, as it were. And we ask along with the psalm writer that we might behold wonderful things from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So Grimm and Ballard, both looking for the right thing, both knew what they're looking for, but looking in the wrong place. How about you this morning? How would you answer uh, our question, our greeting question? Are you better at finding things or are you better at losing things? Um, to some extent, and I want to be care- careful in these days of political correctness, I don't want to be labeled as uh, a sexist, but I find that a lot of that can be determined along gender lines, at least among my friends and associates and family members. I find that guys are better at losing things, and gals are better at finding things. It's definitely the way it is in my family. One of the things that I really have a hard time at times keeping track of is my car keys. I'll be leaving the house, I'll, have, you know, I'll be on its schedule like the rest of us, and I'm, I'm on my way out the door, and I usually hang my keys on a little rack that's right next to our, our mudroom door, and I go to grab them, and they're not there. I'm thinking, oop, they've got to be on the counter. No, they're not on the counter. They're not in my pockets. Oh, probably by my nightstand next to the bed. I go in, they're not there. And I know it's my depravity, but the first thought that usually comes to my mind is, what in the world has Janine done with my car keys? <laughs> And if that weren't a dumb enough thought, you should at least keep it to yourself. But what I usually say is, "Hun, what did you do with my car keys? And she'll say, I haven't touched your car keys. I have no idea where your car keys are. I said, well, I've looked for them. And then she uses a line that really kind of gets under my skin because my mom used to use it. Have you looked with your eyes open? (laughs) And the implication is you're not a very good looker. You know, you're not. You know, you, you, you run around a room and you seem to be looking, but you're not really looking or you're not looking in the right place. Ever had that happen to you? You know what you're looking for, but you're not looking in the right place and you're not finding it. I guess that brings me to what I consider to be the most important question in life, and that is this. Where are you looking for the assurance of eternal life? Where are you looking for the assurance of eternal life. You know, I suppose that there hasn't been any other verse uh, used of God to bring more people to a personal faith in Jesus Christ than John 3.16. And I'm just going to do something a little different here. We're going to throw John 3.16 up on the board there. And, uh, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask everybody to just read along with me one time. You ready? Here we go. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son... That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Simple verse. Simple verse. People, three-year-old kids come to understand it and come to faith. And 90-year-old kids understand it and come to faith. How many, and this is not a trick, and I'm not going to call on anyone. I give you my word. But how many here think that... Maybe not exactly word perfect, but more or less, you can recite John 3.16. You've got it sort of committed to memory. How many people would that be? Yeah, see, I'd say half, maybe better than half. But what if I were to say to you, how many here could recite John 3 verses 14 and 15? Yeah, (laughs) no fair, no fair. My wife. But can I suggest to you that John 3, 14, and 15 are inextricably linked 
to John 3.16. As a matter of fact, they're used by our Lord in a very unique way. John 3, verses 14 and 15 say this, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Then verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting or eternal life. And again, that those verses have been used to bring countless people to faith in Jesus Christ. But, but verses 13 and 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That's referring back to an incident in the book of Numbers. You can either turn there in your Bibles or uh, just we'll have the verses up on the screen. But that's referring to an incident back in Numbers chapter 21. Um, and just to give you a little bit of background to what's going to happen in Numbers chapter 21, uh, in Numbers chapter 13 and 14, uh, the people had come to the brink of the promised land. Remember, God had led them out of slavery in Egypt, right? With a whole series of miraculous uh, signs, wonders, uh, the plagues that he brought upon Egypt. And, of course, all of that culminated with God opening the Red Sea uh, and the children of Israel going through uh, and escaping through the Red Sea. And when Pharaoh and his army attempted to follow, the Red Sea swallowed them up. And... For a time, they were they were in the wilderness and uh, moving around. God gradually bringing them to the very brink of the land that He had promised to give them. And then remember, in chapter thirteen, they send out the twelve spies. Now, when they send the twelve spies in to check out the land, uh, it's basically intended to be uh, a planning mission, not a decision making mission. <laughs> But when the 12 spies come back, you guys know the story. Ten of them say, there's no way we can take it. There are giants in the land. They're greater than we are. We were like grasshoppers in their sight, etc., etc. And long story short, all, all ten of the spies bring a negative report. Only Joshua and Caleb give a positive report and say we should go up and take the land. But Israel rebelled and refused to take possession of the land that God had told them that they were to take possession of. And as a result of their rebellion against God, God said, you will now wander in the desert until every single person from this generation that I led out of Egypt, everyone 20 years of age or older, once everybody 20 years of age or older has died, then I will lead the children, your little ones, when they're grown and you're dead, I will lead them into the promised land since you would not believe me. And that has happened. And now, sometime later, they're still wandering in the Sinai Desert, a horrible uh, wilderness, dry, barren sort of a place if you've ever been there. So let's pick up the action uh, in Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 and 5. It says they traveled, it's about a million people now, it's about a million Israelites. They traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around to Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses. And they said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? There's no bread, there's no water, and we detest this miserable food. Now remember again, they're in the Sinai Peninsula, uh, an area where Israel just in the last 50 years, 60 years, uh, has fought a number of wars. Um, 
It's, a, again, a desert, barren place with very little water. And the people only have water when, God, when, they, when it's essential and God provides in a way. And the only food they have is manna. Uh, remember the word means, what is it, right? It was, it, God would rain it down every night from heaven, and it was very edible. But I guess after a period of time, and it was an extended period of time, the people begin to complain. Complain against God, complain against Moses. Now, in one sense, humanly speaking, you can almost get why they would complain, you know? Uh, Sometimes not having enough water, but never perishing because God's caring for them. Sometimes not really wanting to eat manna again and again. I mean, how many recipes are there for manna? You know, you can only eat so much but manna bread. But they start complaining. They start, they start grumbling against God and grumbling against Moses. And while in one sense, humanly speaking, it might be somewhat understandable, God didn't look at it as, as an insignificant thing. As a matter of fact, God looked at it as sin, outright and deliberate sin. And frankly, it's the sin that many of us have committed and <laughs> know all too well. And that's the all too common sin of blaming other people for the consequences of our own sin. It's the sin of refusing to take responsibility for my own sinful actions and the consequences that those actions have brought on me. It's blaming somebody else. And that's exactly what the children of Israel are doing. They're blaming God and they're blaming Moses. You know, saying things like, you know, Moses, weren't there enough graves in Egypt? Weren't there enough places that you could have buried us in Egypt? Did you have to bring us all the way out here to bury us all and kill us all? And God, again, God saw it as Moses, and he, I'm sorry, God saw it as sin, and he brings judgment against Israel for doing it. Look what happens. Numbers 21 and verse 6. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. You get the picture? They've complained. God says, I've had it. <laughs> You're sinning, and I'm going, there's, there's always a consequence to our sin. And he sends these little venomous, poisonous snakes, and they're biting the people. And as the people are being bitten, they're dying. They're, the, the snakes are deadly. And what Jesus Christ does, 1,300 years after the fact, he picks up on this incident in the life of the nation of Israel and uses it as an illustration. And... Look what happens. Uh, they say, you know, we're being, they're being bitten. The Lord has brought these poisonous snakes. So here's what they do. Verse 7. The people came to Moses and they said, We've sinned when we spoke against the Lord and we spoke against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Now, they're showing common sense. Obviously, there's a very severe consequence to their sin. They went out from under that consequence, and they're like, oops, guess we went a step too far. We were wrong. Moses, would you pray for us? They go to their leader, and Moses agrees to pray for them. Moses prays, Numbers 21, verses 8 and 9. The Lord said to Moses, in answer to his prayer, make a snake and put it on a pole. And anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, he lived. 
Now, again, Jesus is picking up on this incident 1,300 years later, and he's drawing an analogy. It is Jesus Christ's own illustration, and I would add only illustration, of what it means to believe in him for eternal life. And he's saying, look, just as there is such a thing as physical death, Israel in Numbers 21, so also there's such a thing as spiritual death. Just as it's possible to perish physically, it's possible to perish spiritually and eternally. What does it mean to perish spiritually? What does it mean to perish eternally? Well, in contrast with eternal life, to perish spiritually, to perish eternally, means the absence of hope, the absence of joy, the absence of peace, the absence of consolation and comfort, the the absence of God for all eternity. And even as I say that, what what a horrible thing that would be. What an unthinkable thing that would be. But God, and, and guys, I don't know a preacher alive, and Pastor Jim will tell you the same thing, who even likes to, to bring that up, that yes, hell is a real place. But there's, here's the good news, there's no reason anyone should go there. As you look at this account in Numbers chapter 21 and, and how our Lord uses it as an illustration, there's something that's really striking, at least it was to me when I first read this quite a number of years ago, like uh, back in the early 1980s. And the thing that strikes me about our Lord's illustration here is that the perfect, sinless Son of God compares himself to a snake. Isn't that that striking? I think it is. In the Numbers 21 incident, it seems to be that that when, when Moses prays to God, God tells him, put the brazen serpent, the bronze serpent, up on a pole, and anyone who's bitten by one of the poisonous snakes, when they look at the bronze serpent, they will live, physically speaking. In other words, God was requiring the people of Israel to look upon that which was representative of their sin. And again, Jesus picks up on this 1,300 years later. And he says, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must I, the Son of Man, be lifted up, that whoever looks to me, believes in me, should not perish but have everlasting life. You know, there's a very interesting verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21 says, says this, God made him, that is Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now notice, that verse does not say that God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to bear our sin. Although that's marvelously true. That's absolutely true. But this verse says something more than that. It says that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And think about it. On the cross, when Jesus Christ was dying, all of the wrath of God for sin, all of the anger of God for sin, all of the retribution 
from God. For all the sins of all mankind for all time were laid on Jesus Christ. And in at least St. Paul's mind, in a very real sense, he became sin for us. And so just as the children of Israel had to look on the the brass serpent, representative of all the real serpents that were biting them, that which represented their sin. So you and I have to look on Jesus Christ, our sin bearer, the one who became sin for us, so that we can be healed eternally and spiritually. There's a ninth, there was a 19th century preacher, a very famous Anglican preacher in Great Britain by the name of William Haslam. And William Haslam had a painting of this scene in Numbers chapter 21 hanging on the wall in his study. And in his two-volume biography, William Haslam describes the painting. And he says that there were four Israelites who were very prominent in the painting. They, They stood out from the others. And he said one of the Israelites obviously had taken a stick or maybe his staff and was going around the camp and killing as many snakes as he could, just like wailing on the snakes. And then there was a second Israelite who had evidently grabbed a number of people, and they were going around trying to tend to the wounds of the people who had been bitten, bandaging wounds, caring for those who were bitten and dying. And then there's a third Israelite, very prominent in the picture. Moses is kind of standing on a rock outcropping. And and this third Israelite is on his knees praying to Moses. And then he said the fourth Israelite, who was in the foreground of the painting, uh, had evidently been bitten and was just gazing forlorn off into the distance. And he said it was the most hopeless look you could ever see on a person's face. And that person had obviously given up hope. And Haslam said, I had that picture on my wall for years, he said, and one day as I sat looking at it, I realized that those Israelites were doing everything except the one thing that God had told them to do, and that was to look to the serpent on the pole. He said, but then I compared it to my own life. And he tells the story about that. And and I've thought about it in regards to our modern day. How many of us spend our lives fighting sin? Trying to conquer our demons. If if you were a pastor and you've been in counseling with people, people will tell you, I've got my demons, you know. And, And life is spent trying to vanquish the demons. But guys, listen, nobody finds eternal peace doing that. And then there are people who, you know, Good-hearted folks who decide that the way to find peace is to is to get involved in worthy causes. Maybe they put up homes for Habitat for Humanity. Uh, maybe they're involved in in Echo, you know, in, in collecting stuff here in Evergreen for for people that are needy in our community. Or maybe they work for the Red Cross and blood drives, and those are all good things. But nobody finds eternal peace by being involved in social causes and helping others. They don't. And then in our day, there are people who are convinced that prayer, at least prayer to certain 
saints, maybe their denomination or their background. In my background, uh, I have a couple of friends who, who rarely ever pray to Jesus, but they pray to Mary daily, faithfully. I hate to use the word religiously. There are others who, who now pray uh, to, um, where is it on my thing? Uh, help me out. The mother of Cal- uh, Calcutta. Mother Teresa. Yeah. I have a couple of friends who now have adopted Mother Teresa as their patron, and they pray faithfully to Mother Teresa. Guys, nobody will find eternal peace praying to Mary or praying to Mother Teresa or any other saint or person from the church. And still others around us and among us have just given up. They don't really believe there is any answer. They don't really believe that a person can find eternal peace with God here and now and know that they have eternal life. They've just given up hope. And you know what? The truth is they're doing everything except the one thing that Jesus said they should do, and that is to look to him crucified for them. Probably, uh, I was going to say probably the greatest preacher of all time. A lot of people consider him to be the greatest preacher of all time. He's called the Prince of Preachers. His name was Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And Spurgeon lived uh, again in the 1800s, and preached literally, uh, not just to tens of thousands in his life, but hundreds of thousands. And a number of years ago, I came across his own account of how he came to the assurance of eternal life. It's, um, it'll take a minute to read it, but it's a wonderful story, and it really illustrates uh, the verses I think we're looking at this morning. Charles Haddon Spurgeon says this, While under concern for my soul, I resolved that I would attend all the places of worship in the town where I lived. He lived in a suburb of London, and in the 1800s, guarantee you there were a lot of places of worship. I did this in order that I might find out the way of salvation. I was willing to do anything. I was willing to be anything if I just knew that God would forgive my sin. I set off to go to all the chapels and places of worship, and I did, but for a long time I went in vain. I don't blame the pastors, however. One man preached on divine sovereignty. I could hear him with pleasure, but what was that sublime truth to a poor sinner who wished to know what he must do to be saved? There was another man who always preached on the law, but what was the use of plowing up ground that needed to be sown? Another was a very practical preacher, and I heard him, but it was much like a commanding officer teaching maneuvers of war to a group of men with no feet. But what could I do? All of his exhortations were lost on me. I knew that the Bible said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. But I did not know what it meant to believe on Jesus Christ. I sometimes think that I might have been in darkness and despair until now if it had not been for the mercy of God in sending a snowstorm one Sunday morning while I was going to a certain place of worship. When I could go no further, I turned down a side alley and walked until I came to a little primitive Methodist chapel. In that chapel, there may have been a dozen or 15 people 
The minister did not come that morning. I suppose he was snowed up. At last, a very thin-looking man, either a shoemaker or possibly a tailor, something like that, went up into the pulpit to preach. Now, it may be that a preacher should be educated, but this man was really stupid. (laughs) That always gets me. He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had little else to say. The text was, look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. He didn't even pronounce the words correctly. But that didn't matter because there was, I thought, a glimmer of hope for me in that very simple text indeed. The preacher began this way. My friends... This is a very simple text. It says, look. Now, looking don't take a great deal of pain. It ain't lifting your foot. It ain't lifting your finger. It is just look. Well, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool. You can still look. A man needn't be worth a thousand a year to look. Anyone can look, even a child can look. Ah, but then the text says, look unto me. Aye, he said in broad Essex, many of you are on to look into yourselves. But it's no use looking there. You'll never find peace or comfort in yourselves. Some of you say, look to God the Father. Don't worry about that. Look to God the Father by and by. Jesus Christ says, look unto me. Some of you say, we must wait for the Spirit's working. You don't have any business with that just now. Look to Christ. The text says, look unto Jesus. Then the good man followed up his text in this way. Look unto me. I'm sweating great great drops of blood. Look unto me, I'm a-hanging on the cross. Look unto me, I'm dead and buried. Look unto me, I rise again from the dead. Look unto me, I ascend to heaven. Look unto me, I'm sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, poor sinner, look unto me, look unto me, look unto me. When he had gone about that length and he had managed to spend about 10 minutes or so, I dare say he was at the end of his tether. Then he looked at me out under the gallery, and I dare say, with so few people present, he knew me to be a stranger. And then fixing his eyes on me as if he knew all my heart, he said, young man, you look quite miserable. Well, I did, but I was not accustomed to having remarks made about my appearance from the pulpit before. (laughs) However, it was a good blow. It struck right home. And then he continued, and you always will be miserable. Miserable in life and miserable in death if you don't obey my text. But if you obey my text, this moment you will be saved. Then lifting up his hands, he shouted as only a primitive Methodist could, Young man, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Look, 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 young man. Look 
to Jesus. Well, I looked until I could have almost looked my eyes away. But suddenly, then and there, the cloud was lifted, the darkness rolled away, and at that moment, I saw the sun. And at that moment, I could have arisen and sung with the most enthusiastic of the saints gathered there about the precious blood of Christ and of the simple faith that looks to him alone. Oh, that somebody had told me this before. Trust Christ and you will be saved. Look to Christ and you will be saved. Believe in Christ and you will be saved. Not for 10 minutes, not for 10 days, not for 10 years or even 10,000 years, but you will be saved for all eternity. At the moment you look at Jesus Christ crucified for you, you are saved. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And then Spurgeon goes on to say this, and I find this troubling as a pastor. He says, some preachers would need a week to tell you what you must do to be saved, but the Holy Spirit only uses four letters to do it, and two of them are the same. L-O-O-K, look to Jesus Christ. Amen. That is good news. Not just because I'm the one who gets to say it. Guys, if I were a primitive Methodist preacher, I'd shout hallelujah from the top of my lungs. That's the best news I've ever heard in my life. Or ever will. And you too. You too. You know, I have a little devotional at home. Um... It's called, a, it's called One Year Book of Christian History, and it's basically uh, a January 1 to December 31 daily readings, and each reading is about an event in Christian history. It's written by uh, E. Michael Rustin, and somewhere uh, Spurgeon's own words about his conversion. But Rustin adds this, and I found this interesting. He said, Spurgeon said, and I quote, I asked many different preachers the same question. How can I know I have eternal life? And not one could provide an answer that I understood. That breaks my heart. Notice he didn't say that Spurgeon asked the same question to many different Christians. He said Spurgeon asked the same question of many different pastors. How can I know I have eternal life? And he said not one of them could give me an answer that I was able to understand. And it ought to be transparently obvious by now, guys, but let me say it anyway. Getting into heaven has absolutely nothing to do with what you do. But it has everything to do with what Jesus Christ did on the cross for you 2,000 years ago. And that's good news. Hallelujah. Did you know that your soul has eyes? I've been talking about looking. The whole message this morning is to look to Jesus. We... We're talking basically about the eyes of our soul. Your soul has eyes. 
And if this morning, maybe for the first time, with the eyes of your soul, you can see Jesus Christ crucified for you. At the moment you see that, God gives you everlasting life and the Bible says you will never, ever perish. And that's really, really good news. The worship team is going to come up and close us now with a song uh, that all of you know, but it's a newer rendition by Chris Tomlin. It's a wonderful song that speaks about God's amazing grace. And I just want to ask a simple favor. If I don't know everyone here. I know a lot of you don't know all of you. But if for the first time this morning in your heart you've been able to see with the eyes of your soul Jesus Christ crucified for you, do me a favor. Don't, I was going to say don't leave here without telling somebody. Sometimes that's a little hard. That would be ideal. But let me say this. Don't let the sun go down today without telling someone that for the first time you've understood that the only place to look for eternal assurance is to look to Jesus Christ crucified. And the minute you do, the Bible says you have everlasting life and you can never, ever perish. Father, thank you so much for this gift of grace, this unspeakable gift of grace. I ask this morning, Lord, that you would apply it to your people gathered here, make it real, make it relevant, make it life-transforming in their hearts for Jesus' sake. Amen.